Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Fighting on Film podcast. The podcast all about classic and obscure war movies, from the Normandy landings to the days of chivalry and swords. If it's been captured on film, we're going to try and cover it. I'm Robbie of RM Military History. I'm Matthew Moss of Historical Firearms and the Armourer's Bench. Welcome back to Fighting on Film. This week we are continuing Anzac Month with 1944's The Rats of Tobruk. We thought it would be uh, a good idea to cover an older Australian film because we've done a lot of the, the, the new wave 80s films and we thought it'd be great to take a look at an earlier Australian film where some of those films have obviously taken some inspiration. So we're yeah. going to be looking at The Rats of Tobruk, which basically follows three main characters um, going from their, um, their jobs back in Australia as, as stockmen uh, through to joining, joining up the, uh, with the AIF and then fighting in uh, North Africa and eventually in the Far East. You might have uh, been tuning in this week to hear Kokoda with Robert Lyman. Uh, we've had to push that back, so that'll be later in the months. Don't worry about that. Getting back to the film in hand. Yeah, it does. It goes from fighting in Libya at Tobruk to New Guinea but not sure it's the best representation or you know I'm not sure it's the best might be a little bit too ambitious I think so I think it bites off way more than it can chew and we've watched the American version and then we went away and watched the Australian version there are two edits of this movie where the Australian version comes out in 1944 um, in the UK it comes out in 1949 and then it comes out in 1951 in the US and they cut about 40 minutes out of the movie it's just yeah. it goes from an hour and a half. 95 to, minutes to yeah. uh, the, the Australian cut is 95. And then the 1951 US cut is uh, an hour and eight minutes, just 68 minutes. 
Yeah, it rivals Nine Men for short war movies, doesn't it? Yeah, it does actually. Mm, yeah, good point. It really does. So uh, we've done we've done the rough plot map. Do you want to go with the production this week? Sure. So this was directed by Charles Chevelle, and he is probably best known for uh, his enormously popular uh, 1940 film, The 40,000 Horsemen, which ties in with last week's episode about the light horseman. Um, uh, and he, throughout the war, he did a number of um, information films about Australian industry, war industry, shipbuilding, um, and the war in Europe. So from 42 to 43, that's what he was working on, some short information films for the Australian uh, Department of Information. And then in 1943, he began working on this film. And all of the newspaper reports I, I looked into and that, that you looked into as well, Rob, talk about how he did about 12 months worth of background research, talking to people that were at Tobruk, um, talking with the army, etc doing some in-depth research and, and gathering um, the background information he needed to, to, to contextualize these three men's experience into Brooke. And mm. uh, it, he was helped by his wife, um, Elsa Chevelle, who um, was uh, the producer on the film. And she helped work on, on a bit of the, the, the writing of the film as well. And there was some help from Maxwell Dunn uh, in, in, in the writing department. Uh, it was shot by, Chevelle's long-term uh, collaborator, George Heath, who worked on 40,000 Horsemen and all of his um, his wartime documentary short films as well. And he had a long career running from the early 30s right through to the late 1950s. It was edited by Gus Lowry, and the music was provided by Lindley Evans, working alongside uh, Charles Macares and uh, Willie Redstone. Uh, and they'd worked together before. Uh, Lindley... Evans had worked on Uncivilized in 1936 and 40,000 Horsemen. So there was collaborations going on there as well. Mm. Um, there was a lot of input from the, the Australian Armed Forces. Um, they, they had a, a staff officer, uh, a Major G.K. Austin, who had been at Tobruk, and he was one of the uh, technical military advisors on the film uh, alongside a Lieutenant Dunbar and a, and a Lieutenant Woods as well. And there was lots of units that worked in the film, providing extras, uh, equipment, kit. Um, a lot of the, the recreations of Tobruk itself and the, the defences around Tobruk were, were recreated and, and, and dug and constructed by uh, Australian sappers, Royal Engineers. And we even get an inclusion of some really interesting tanks, which I'm, I think I will leave to Rob because I know he wants to talk about those later. It was shot in uh, a number of places in Australia. It was shot, um, the, the Tobruk replica, the, the little town they built, uh, was built at Curran's Hill, which is outside Camden in, in New South Wales. And um, some of the footage was actually uh, shot on location. Um, I think what they did was they, the army sent out um, sort of FPU chaps to, to film stuff in New Guinea, and they used a lot of uh, contemporary footage which works yeah. really well throughout the film, which we'll talk about much more later on. You I can think. see some rushes on the AWM, can't you, of the New Guinea parts? You can, yeah. 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 The, the little bit of the background, sort of behind the scenes bit where they film yeah, good. the New mm. Guinea bit is really yeah, we'll interesting. Stick, we'll stick that up on the social. It's quite good. Absolutely. Um, the interior filming was done at the Commonwealth Film Laboratories uh, and the 
Cronula Sandhills stood in for the African desert, which is quite effective, mm. actually. Almost good. as good as um, South Wales's beaches in uh, Nine Men. Yeah, so that's what's it's getting into it early. I can't help it, but that's what annoys me about this movie. This movie in general, the sets are great, but the movie itself for me just isn't. Can't help but tell people early how I feel, but like it, it, it's irritating. I know what you mean. I know, it's definitely a flawed film, um, mm. but it's got it's got some redeeming factors within that. In terms of military involvement in the film, we had the uh, Third Army Tank Battalion providing a squadron of tanks uh, for some of the North Africa scenes. And we also had, as I mentioned, sappers working on digging the defences, etc. And we had men from the 18th Australian Infantry Brigade that were used in the filming. So it's me on cast this week. So kicking off the cast, we have Grant Taylor, who plays Bluey Donkin. And he was born in Newcastle in the UK. And he moved to Australia when he was young. He also starred in Chevelle's 40,000 Horsemen in 1940. And he also did some Department of Information films, such as 10,000 Cobbers, which is sort of the... Australian version of the new lot feels the same. Oh, right. okay, a bit cool. earlier. Yeah, it's yeah. quite good. Um, and he was also, this is one for Matt, he was also in uh, Quater Mass and the Pit in 1967 too. Oh, cool. Okay. Nice little thing. I yeah, do, I do love that there. movie. He does. Uh, Peter Finch plays Peter Linton. Uh, he's an English-born Australian actor. One of the only two Australian actors to win an Oscar for, for, for the acting category in the fabulous 1976 film Network. If you haven't seen Network, it's one of the best movies of the 70s for me. It's a great performance. He, he comes a long way from this film. That's I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. That's how I felt watching this movie at times, actually. <laughs> <laughs> if you know Network, you'll know that scene. But he also starred in a few war films, uh, such as The Wooden Horse. Uh, he was in the sequel to Mrs. Miniver, uh, The Miniver Story in 1950. Oh. Uh, and he was, yeah, he was in the Battle of the River Plate uh, as played uh, Captain uh, Longsdorf of the uh, Bismarck, I think, in that. Of course, yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was also in Operation Amsterdam, and his last film credit before he passed away in 1977 was Raid on Entebbe. Oh, wow, okay. Mm, interesting. Yeah. One of the slew of films made about that. That's interesting. Yeah, we could do an Entebbe month, to be fair. We could, actually, yeah. That, yeah. The, I think there are about four. Yeah, we Coming could, next we month, Entebbe <laughs> month, though. No. <laughs> we'll spare you for another theme month for a few months, listeners. Do not worry. For a while, yeah. For a while, yeah, yeah. Um, and then we have Chips Rafferty as Milo Trent, and he was from New South Wales, and he also starred in 40,000 Horsemen. He was in the Royal Australian Air Force during the Second World War, and he entertained troops as well. Um, and he was in the Desert Rats in 1953 and appears in Mutiny on the Bounty in 1962. Yeah, I actually read somewhere that they were all uh, serving in one capacity or another, and they were all released from service to star in the film. Yeah, I think all of them were. George Wallace uh, played the barber, and he was an Australian comedian, entertainer, like famous on radio. And he was well known in, in Australia at the time of filming. We have uh, Joe Viali or Joe Valley um, as a Scottish soldier who's in the, the Northumberland Fusiliers. And he was a, a Scottish Australian actor. He'd been in 40,000 Horsemen as well. Um, and he was a vaudeville performer, part of the Chicken Joe double act. So I think at the time, you know, they're getting in these famous like celebrity types, you know, like almost like the kind of like how Harry Styles was in Dunkirk. It's like you're getting them in for something else, but they're really you're really getting them in for like a fan of that would, would go and see it. I can't remember the exact name of what, what that's called. Yeah, it's like it's uh, like almost um, name recognition and drawing, that's drawing it. It yeah, in uh, yeah. alternate audiences that you perhaps wouldn't get normally, that kind of thing. Yeah, and then we have a Filipino boxer, Tony uh, Villa, 
he plays the uh, the Japanese soldier who appears at the end. Only in the Aust- Australian cut, not in the US cut. Yeah, in the US cut, it's not not in it at all. Um, so and then we have the the two actresses who play uh, Kate, uh, she, who's played by Pauline Garrick, and the nurse who's played by Mary Gay. And they seem this seems to be their only film credit. I couldn't find anything more about these two actresses. So I mean, yeah, it's a very tight cast. There isn't really. No, so, there's a few. There's a few of the little um, a bit one or two line characters. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You get Major Exposition and his generals in the middle, <laughs> uh, who just explains the Battle of Tobruk for you very quickly, um, which is nice. It's nice for the viewer. It's got a lovely map. Got a great map. There's a bit where he, <laughs> he talks about the armored unit need to hold this particular town, and then just at the moment he gets a letter that goes, "Oh, that town's fallen." <laughs> it's like, oh god, that's really <laughs> yeah. cliche. You know, even for 1944, you know, their war movie tropes are still early, but this one's really like taking the biscuit quite early on. I mean, there's some great actors who go on to have fabulous careers after. Mm. You wouldn't know it from this film, I think, at certain points. No, I mean, let, I mean, just to discuss the acting in general for a moment, it, it, a lot of it is quite wooden and it feels very dated. And we've covered we've covered older films already on the pod. We've done Batan, yeah. we've done Nine Men, we've done films older. And a lot of those have dialogue which is snappy. It works really well. It's mm. of its time, but it, it, it feels fresh enough that modern audiences could get into it fairly easily. But this film, it, there's a combination of perhaps the writing and the actual performances that make it very clunky in places. Yeah. A lot of it Some, feels ad-libbed as well. Like that, they're having to play off George Wallace's character or having to play off the Scottish yeah. character in certain parts. Yeah. Unfortunately, I, you know, when I did acting at university and after, for some people, ad-libbing is very difficult. You either can do it well or you can't. If you mm. put an actor who's not used to it in a situation with a comedian who's snappy and funny and witty off, off the cuff, that can be quite difficult. Or not, as the case may be. Yeah, I know there's been a few movies recently that, that was plagued by that. I know the Star Wars, the... Han Solo story film that was meant to be like an ad lib sort of piece and that suffered because of that but it it does feel like that at certain sequences you've got George Wallace doing this sort of like Laurel and Hardy-esque type comedy and all the other actors are sort of trying to get a word in it's quite jarring yeah I wonder if they were just handed like a page outline and then they just let him go it does feel that way doesn't it and they they had to to run off him uh, and especially the bit where he's on his own in the barbershop that's possibly the best part with him it feels like a skit though doesn't it it feels out of place because though i know there's an extended sequence in the barber shop it's not extended it's a few minutes long um before they have their sing song in the in the canteen um Mm. near the end Um, and that's cut in the american version and i went back and obviously compared the two sequences you don't lose anything character wise or plot wise you don't lose anything um which is annoying because both cuts don't work for me either which is sort of annoying well i i think the, i think some, that's something we'll talk about later on but sure, i think sure, yeah. what the problem is even when you try and cut out some of the the, the more necessary unnecessary scenes you end up with having the same fundamental problem of some of it's just a bit too clunky and not yes really mm. either well written or well performed and even by cutting about half an hour out of the film it still leaves a lot of those scenes which yeah. are just like oh, this is not particularly well written, you know? Mm. And it's then it annoys me because then you're taking away from the actual story of the siege and what yes. you could have put in. You know, history buffs and people who enjoy the history are going to know some things about Tobruk. But your audience back home who maybe, you know, if you're thinking about it, this movie came out in 1944. 
you know, as we know now by trying to trying to keep up with the war in Ukraine, and it's topical, but you know, trying to keep up with the war in Ukraine can be quite a whirlwind. You know, you'll be reading something one minute, something else happens, and you'll stop reading about that thing and you're reading about a new thing. Some of these facts and some of these battles, the people back home in Australia and the wider world just may have been lost through people having to sort of trying to keep up with current events. So mm, yeah, to not show the siege as well as you should have done, in my opinion, is a bit of a it, it's not like a two finger to the people who were there, but just what they choose to show and what they don't for me is just conf- a bit, bit annoying and, and sort of, I can't find the word, but you know, you get what I'm trying to say. I know what you mean. I, but I would say that this film probably shows the scale of the, 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 the siege itself, as well as any, probably the best of any Tobruk film. Yeah, so there, are, yeah of, there are it, some stinkers, aren't they, where Tobruk's concerned? If you think of like Desert Rats, you, you, you just get, a few sequences where they're in an, uh, a little trench um, yeah, no, fair and some enough. discussion. Yeah. And there's a good Czech movie about, um, about Tobruk called Tobruk, um, yeah. which I watched recently. That's quite good. But what, as you were saying there, what was interesting is when I was doing a bit of background research, I found a really interesting quote from Chevelle uh, in, in an August 1943 edition of the, uh, the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, and he, he describes the film and he says, I hope Rats of Tobruk will do for Australia's fighting men what such fine productions as In Which We Serve and The First of the Few have done for British servicemen. The courage of the ordinary Australian soldier is the keynote of the story, which I have built from the authentic material supplied by General Moreshead and many of the men who were under his command during the siege. Naturally, the share borne by the British Tommies has not been forgotten either. So that's really interesting because he's obviously trying to, to... personify the you know the the australian soldier into these characters mm. and he's also not into to british tommies but the british tommies left well behind in the actual final cut of the film we get yeah the, they're, they're the men- northumberland chap who's the fourth umberland news believers as he calls them at one point yes it's bizarre quite a good line um, yeah, it is. which is good and it does line. mention the indians it does mention the czech and the polish troops at the end mm-hmm. it doesn't show them you know that could have been another thing you could have done you could have had indeed you could have had inclusion you could have showed everyone who fought there i mean obviously i know it's mainly an australian you know touchstone we think of in the ninth division they were yeah. very very you know embattled and they were in the thick of the fighting but you know to brook is a is a combined effort from, from a lot of countries um so i've got some some reviews um to read out this week too and they were much more scathing than i thought they were going to be so we've got one from Variety from February 45. And I'll just read some excerpts because I think it, it says enough. Chevelle's direction fails to bring out any light and shade. Too much time is devoted to war sequences with scant attention paid to story continuity. Chevelle also has rung in several newsreel clips for good measure, but not effectively. A poor piece of celluloid. Harsh. It really is. That harsh. is harsh. Yeah. And I think one of the stronger aspects of this film are those set pieces. I know when you watch the movie, they can seem quite disjointed. The the sequence with the majors telling you about how the defence is going to go, they, they pretty much follow it beat for beat. So you do know as a viewer what's going to happen. Mm. I'm not sure if, I know that the version comes out in 51, but it seems to me that reviewer in 45 has seen the US version because the US version really throws you in and you're not sure what's happening. But the Australian release follows it in more of a structure. More it's easier to follow. Yeah. Um, and I just thought quickly... I would mention what the Americans thought of the movie. They didn't enjoy it either. So this is from the 25th of May in the Argus, which is Australian um, newspaper. And the banner headline, I had to laugh, was 
New York calls the rats a most harrowing bore. It's just not something you read these days um, about movies. You don't really get these kind of tarnishing reviews. And it says the Rats of Tobruk has had a poor reception. The New York Times critic describing it as one of the most harrowing bores in years from anywhere. The bush or the bushes at the bottom of the garden. Wow. It's something, isn't it? But what did you guys think? As always, we put out our one-word reviews at the start of the week. We had Kevin Getz said, buddy film. Ernest Malley, our, uh, our Australian, uh, one of our Australian following, said barber. And then he also said Owen Guns, finally. Yes. If you know Ernest, he loves an Owen Guns. So do we, Ernest. Don't worry about that. A.D. Bond said, surrounded. Uh, Michael said, chips. Um, Rich Fisher, Vickers MG, for those in the know, said, carriers. And then apparently the local the local variant, the proper Australian ones, uh, Woody from World War Two TV, he said, good intentions. It's a two word review, but he had a good point to make, but lacking something that makes it a real classic. And I replied to him and I said, I think you might be onto something there. I think he is. I think he is. And then finally, Liam Patrick uh, said, Sandy. It's a movie about a desert. It's got sand in it. Can't go wrong. They definitely review it fairly well. That, that rounds it out, doesn't it? But I think this is a Marmite film. Yeah, I think you either like it or you don't, and I definitely fall in the latter. So, on to Ali Tally, I think. Let's talk about some positives. It's time for Ali Tally on Fighting on Film. What have you got for this week's pick for the Ali Tally? So, I liked, and it took me a while because the US release has an awful print and you can't see what's going on in the night fighting sequences. Yes. So for the listeners at home, we first watched the 68 minute US cut and then we thought, this is bloody terrible. We need <laughs> we to did, go and we? watch. We were messaging each other going, <laughs> we were in the WhatsApp chat being like, this isn't real, is it? This isn't the right one. I'm sure this is longer. And then we realised that we hadn't watch the Australian version, which in Anzac month would be a crime if we didn't watch the Australian version of the movie. Yeah. Um, so we sought out the um, the Australian, the proper cut, the original. Which you can rent on YouTube, by the way. Yeah, and Google and uh, Amazon and much better version. The print was much, much, much better. But you can see what's happening, which is you great the, for which a film. Is, which is always good, I think, with film. I think as a visual medium, it's always good to actually see what's going on in the film. Exactly, yeah. So when we finally could see these really well shot night sequences hang on those tanks are quite interesting what the hell are they mm. um so they are australian sentinels and they were part of the australian cruiser program which they were trying to make their own version of say you know the cruiser mark one or mark three yeah yeah um and there are only two of them left surviving after the war um, and one's at bovington it's um if you're thinking of it from in in, in from my memory they're the the tank that has the very odd looking machine gun i knew you were going to say that front. I, yes it looks, it looks like a... Um, yeah, something very yes. very um, rated R, shall we say. Yes, for, for looks the, phallic. The listeners. It does say. look phallic. Yes, it does. Um, there's a good video on it about it on the um, Tank Museum's uh, YouTube. But they're mocked up to look like Italian tanks. Um, yeah, and they've we, had like little cupolas put on the top. And yeah. various bits added on, haven't they? Yeah, there's a good... There's about five or six of them sort of like running around um, firing blanks. My, one of my favourite sequences, which we'll come on to, is is the uh, where they they shoot the uh, the, ta- the the tank commander who's got his head popped out of the cupola, mm. and then uh, jump on the back of the tank and, and drop a grenade into the the turret. 
that's probably as close as you'll ever get to seeing a Sentinel AC-1 in action. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's um, everywhere. Everywhere you look about the Sentinel, it's like, oh, they're in Ratsasa Brook. Yeah. Some of the only few bits of footage that is about of them. Because I don't think they how, saw how action. Does it, how they? does it compare to when the tanks pop up in Nine Men for you? Was it as good a moment? No, <laughs> <laughs> because because I was not expecting them to have to have them true, in in true. in that movie. With this one at the start, when they say, you know, this has been filmed with the army and mm-hmm. it's very transparent. I w- and I didn't, you know, I didn't think Nine Men had the budget to bring a tank in, whereas I thought this yeah. one might have had. And I thought, obviously, they're going to have to have tanks because it's about to brook. And the amount of tanks that the, 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 the Axis powers had to bring to bear was lots. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's not good history, <laughs> but historically you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. That's very partridge. <laughs> <laughs> gosh anyway but no they you know no they had far more bits of armor to bring to bear on, on the besieged um troops at, at tobruk than you know than they had to fight back with i knew there'd be tanks in there i just didn't know whether they'd be stock footage or whether they would be filmed um so it was nice they went out of their way Good to point, actually yeah. lock up some italian tanks and the universal carriers are really nice because they've got vickers guns in them the carriers are so good. They are really nice to see, aren't they? There's that yeah. sequence where there's about four of them and then there's about a company's worth of infantry advancing behind them. That's such a beautiful shot. Bouncing. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. And they all have Vickers guns out the front port as well. You never see it. You really no, see you it. No, you don't. And I think when we get Rich back on next, um, hopefully we're going to do an episode with Rich where we discuss Vickers guns in film. Rich doesn't know this yet, but... You know, <laughs> if you're listening, Rich, I think that's definitely a scene we're going to have to discuss because I know they were pintle mounted in mm-hmm. um, Northwest Europe, so it was really interesting to see them at the front of the of the, uh, of, the of the carrier, but they never get used, which no. is a bit disappointing. So in that first battle sequence where um, the lead carrier beaches, they're on a patrol. Mm-hmm. The, the lead carrier beaches and they they stop, and then out of nowhere, out the out of the dunes come you know like a battalion of italian infantry and they some chap spots them i think is it chips that spots them and shouts eye ties and then leaps off it with a brain gun and it's, that's it that's yeah. when we get the 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 pinnacle of big brain energy for this film is he grabs a brain gun and he leaps off yeah there is some good um, brain action but the, the aussies really like the carriers i've been doing some research into the australian cavalry regiments um for an upcoming video that i'm working on are in military history youtube go <laughs> subscribe today yeah. um so the uh the in the war diaries uh, of the uh the sixth cavalry regiment in uh in libya their after action report says well the mark five light tanks we had we hated they rubbish like they're not fit for purpose basically which is very funny i find australian war diaries are a lot more to the point than british ones that they don't mind i can imagine negative that, yeah 
Yeah, they are. There's swears in them too, which you don't really read very often, um, which is quite interesting. Anyway, anyway, get back to the point. They say they really love the carriers. Um, and they even say these would be fantastic if we could fit some kind of cannon on them. Mm. Um, so they're advocating them to become like tankettes almost. Um, yeah, like a portee or something like that. Yeah, yeah, something like that, which I'm still surprised no one ever tried. Maybe the, the record knocked the thing over, who knows? Um, Perhaps. But yeah, but no, I know that the use of carriers is, is great in this film. I'm just, it's just a shame they don't get used more. It's probably the most carrier use you see in almost any film, though. I think it might be. When you yeah. think about it, um, there's a Leo Gen film that has some carriers in in the desert. Um, it's Bridge Too Far that has a lot of carriers in. But you uh-huh. don't see them in the attack like you do in, in this no, film. No, you don't. Which, no. It was, the universal carriers are probably my number one pick. Um, for this week um, okay i like I would, the vicar's I would, gun action at the in the night yes sequences. i was gonna say well part partly i would have liked to have seen the vicar's guns in the carriers at work um, would have been nice um but yeah the the vicar's gun um action during the, the the siege elements of the film are really great um lots of that you get smooth jacket you get the corrugated jacket the guns um so there's a bit of variation uh, each pit seems to have one. Uh, mm. it, it's there's a fair bit in there, and it's there's a lot of tracer too, which is nice. It's nice, and there's a c- captured Italian weapons, which is nice. There are. During the um, the attack on the disused gun pit at the end of the film, or not well, second to last set piece, um, they go on a night patrol to, to take prisoners and knock out a uh, yeah. position just outside the lines, and. Uh, one chap you see him briefly he's got an mg uh, 34 i really like because one of the elements of tobruk that we know is a lot of axis weapons that have been captured were pressed back into service Mm -hmm. so you see lots of um photographs of mg 34s italian machine guns aircraft weapons all kinds of really interesting stuff Brader, is it with that takes the sort of the clips is it is it a beretta Mm. yeah you see one of those yeah the brader yeah couldn't work out whether it was filmed footage or whether it was stock footage, but there's a, a nice clip of... I thought that was Hotchkiss Portative, but it I might thought, have been a Breda. Yeah, it was mm. one of the two, but it was nice to th- see. It's a very brief clip, and it's on mm. a pedestal AA mount, isn't it? And I, Yeah, I thought it was, a, I thought it was contemporary nerds, I was footage. Like, oh, is that a captured machine gun? Um, and it's nice because they mention it in that scene where you get all the exposition. They go, we've, you know, we've re-rolled all these captured weapons. So to show mm. them in use was actually quite... I look quite good. You know, it's one of the things the movie does well is it shows you the kit. It just doesn't do its best to show you the story, in my opinion. Like everything is there. Yeah, this is this is it. This is one of my points as well. As well, you get Owen guns in the in the New Guinea section, which was a nice you touch. You do, you do. Um you don't see anyone using them, but they're there. They're, they're there, exactly, the, which the, is the, nice enough. Um Thompson's M1928 A1 Thompson's quite a few um, then yeah correct for the the theater in period mm-hmm. um there's there's some nice little sequences where they're being actually used uh in the in the trench fighting uh, around mm. the defenses um there's a really slick little moment where they knock out the tank with a hand grenade and then his oppo throws him up that's Thompson cool. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty good. There's something about um, it's this thing in movies I always love when someone throws someone a weapon and they catch it. It always looks good. 
Is it just me? Am I like, am I like, <laughs> no, it is. It just looks it, yeah, good. No, yeah. It's serotonin here, isn't it? Because it's, yeah, it, it's like a catch in baseball. You know, it's coming, but when they catch it, it's like, yay. You're like, you know, ooh, slick. Like, ooh, nice. Yeah. You know, <laughs> when someone throws someone a clip and they catch it, and yeah, it always looks nice. Uh, another thing that pops up in the contemporary footage, which is cool, is you, you see a, a, a truck drive by with a, a two pounder on the back, a poor T. That's nice. Yeah. There's a brand on it too. Spotty Bedfords? Uh, yeah. There was a, oh, crikey, I didn't even write it down. Um, oh, is it the WMD one or the MWD? It's been, a, it's been a while since we've done Beddies on the show. So I wasn't really. It is. This is why I wanted them. to bring it up. I wanted yeah, to know if there I were think any. It was, one of the, it was one of the WMD ones. In the stock the footage, sheer amount one. you see in the stock footage of the contemporary footage, I thought there there's got to be a Bedford in there somewhere. I couldn't remember the trucks they get into at the end. I couldn't remember what they were either. But I wasn't on a truck. I wasn't on truck mode. I was in sort of. I was in. Oh, I don't like this movie very much. Sort of mode, <laughs> which didn't help. Well, if a Bedford had appeared, it would have clawed some points back. Surely, I would have done DiCaprio in his chair meme, yes. wouldn't I? Yeah. Click, click. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but no, not this week. One one other thing is uh, a lot of the reports at the time that talk about the making of the film all describe how um, they're using captured weapons that have mm-hmm. been captured from the Axis forces. So you see uh, Kakano's K98s. Um, there's an Arasaka at the end. Yeah, the Japanese um, guy's got one. Yeah. There's a M9138 cavalry carbine. You see with the you know the very thin barrel and the folded out spike bayonet. There's there's Ooh. a chap in in one of the 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 infantry attacks that's armed with that um loads of smles it's nailed on for any any australian war film isn't it they're using them quite heavily yeah. and they're still using them in korea so exactly you know, yeah uh, lots of um uh, shots of close-up of, of them working the actions mm. um and yeah that's about it really on, on the, i think on so the, the weapon side of things i mean this is a through line of all, all these australian movies we've covered so far you know the kit and the the, the the equipment on display is always really good. There's always mm. something interesting to talk about. It isn't like it's just oh look there's another SMLE. Oh look there's another Bren gun. There's always something really interesting in there, which I'm I'm enjoying. And in the night sequence, there's I'll talk about it later in in, in my favorite scenes. But there's fine. there's a nice bit where a chap's changing mags on his Bren, mm. and it's mm. it's just it's just nice and slick. It looks good. Mm. It looks correct. We'll wait until Up we there get with nine to, men. You know. Yeah. Wait. Wait until you get to Kokoda. There's men, there's Bren teams with a number two, which you barely ever get, which is... I know, oh. I know. Mm. <laughs> I was it's watching that movie going, Yeah, I was watching that movie going, I know Matt will enjoy that, but I know Robert Lyman will enjoy that as well. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm always on. here for big Bren energy. You know this. Of course. It's one of our postcards. If, you, if you've got one of our sort of our merchandise type postcards, we've got one called Big Bren Energy, which was, if you're a new listener, we coined that phrase when we covered uh, a hill in korea because there's a sequence in that movie where you get four bren guns on a line just absolutely hammering some oncoming infantry um and that's where the term big brain energy was uh, was coined so um moving on to favorite scenes hello there sorry to interrupt i wanted to let you know that you can now join our supporting cast over on patreon as thanks for your support you'll be able to help us pick films submit questions for guests have first pick on brand new and exclusive merch and much more. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. Rob, favourite scene. What have you got? 
found it quite difficult this week. I can't, did I you? can't lie. Shocker. Yeah, I sort of did. Yeah, oh God, we've been listening to the pod <laughs> this week. Crikey. Um, however, you know, I did sort of pick myself up and I thought, actually, no, let's think about it logically, go through it again. I'm sure there's some sequences that are good. So in terms of the Australian cut, I really like the New Guinea sequences. I think mm. they're very strong. They look very authentic because they, they're I just different. More. I wanted more of it too. Mm. I wouldn't have minded if the first half of the movie was Tobruk and the second half of the movie was New Guinea. I wouldn't have minded that at all. Um, mm. I know it would have been difficult with budget and timing and all that other things, but it was. It would have been interesting. It's just because it's tacked on at the end. It's just a bit, I'm like, oh, do you need it? Because the, the Americans didn't think you did. They just cut it out. They did, um, wholesale. Yeah, wholesale. Um but no, I like the sequences. But the night attacks, they're just very well done. You, you get men mm. coming on. You've got Vickers guns going going off. Tracing. Tracer. They're all in their trenches. And Pyro going off. Yeah, the, in the defensive sections, quite good. Um, but I wish we just had more of that, really. But that's my favourite scene. There's my favourite parts. No, nothing else, unfortunately, really stuck out. I did like... I was saying, that, <laughs> saying I don't like anything, then finding things I like. Um, I really... But... I like the start where all the guys are coming on, like they're initially going into Tobruk and you get the uh, newspapers coming in. I really love mm. that in old movies where you get like the men coming into Tobruk, they take Tobruk, axes on the run. You, know, you get this sort of really cliche. Yeah. Next next objective and all this. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, this I love film that. hammers the hell out of exposition. You've not only got that, but you've also got you've got general exposition with his staff meeting. Yeah, you've got it's, um... it's fantastic. It's like, <laughs> it's like it's general exposition and Lieutenant Colonel cliche in that scene, isn't it? <laughs> you, you've got um, the narrator, which hammers home everything. Oh yeah, um, yeah. which is a clunky expositional. It's clunky, um, but it's it works it well enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think for me, yes, again, that my favourite scenes are the set pieces. And mm. that's what Chevelle does best. And it's kind of my my final thought, uh, sort of take on this one, is that Chevelle can do set piece and spectacle really well. And then the other parts of the film don't work as well as those do. And you can see that contrast quite clearly. Um, yeah. But anyway, we'll come back to that in a moment. But the attacks on um, the gun position I mentioned before, that's really great. Um, I all of those little sequences around the uh, the defenses were good. I I felt they gave it a little bit of scale. So they were talking about the interlocking um, defensive positions that like number eight's being attacked right now, number seven's wire has been breached. Um, the the earlier set piece where the tanks move through the, the positions and it it fulfills. General's exposition. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. I suppose it's. They're, I suppose that's most, supposed to be Moore's head. I think I'm so. guessing. But they're the most fluid parts of the movie, aren't they? That section yeah. where you have that briefing in the attack sequences. They're the most. Fl- they're the most good. Sorry, they flow the best out of all the parts do, of the film, which is irritating in a way because it shouldn't take you. It shouldn't take half your movie to get to to the most interesting or the most fluid no. part of your film. Really, it just shouldn't. And I suppose if you've seen 40,000 Horsemen, you know that Chevelle can do spectacle mm. and that scale. Uh, I would say that this this film's probably a little bit more uh, visceral. It's a little bit more hand-to-hand. There's more violence mm, in, in the fighting. Yeah, uh, It lingers on shots a little bit longer. Perhaps that's a choice from Heath. Um, it just, it, 
it just feels a little bit more uh, gritty in places. Okay. With the bayonet fighting, I think. Right. Because I don't, I mean, I'm probably getting into final thoughts now, aren't we, really? Um, mm-hmm. But I didn't think it, the scale was there. Um, right. Because I think a lot of the, I'm a little, I sort of side with that variety review. I think a lot of the heavy lifting scale wise is done by that stock footage, which is fine. I know that old yeah. movies did that. And, you know, some movies still do. Yeah, exactly. Battleground, you know, it's really well done in um, Objective Burma with the, the you know, the, uh, supplies being kicked out of the, the C-47 mm. it can be really well used. We've seen it well used a lot of times. But for me, I just felt, okay, so you're choosing to show that with stock footage, but there's certain elements where I think you don't have to. You could have, you know, it's sort of what you choose to show through stock footage and what you choose, choose to film. Mm. For me, sometimes I'm like, well, you don't use that bit of stock footage and actually show us it. Show us it with the characters because this is where the movie falls flat for me is you want me to care about, um, you know, Bluey and Peter and, and, and uh, Milo. Chips. Chips, yeah. But you don't do enough for me to care enough because there's barely any character development in this movie. There's no, there's barely any arcs. The one guy who's got an arc is um, uh, Bluey, who wants to get home to Kate. Yeah. But that doesn't really come for, that doesn't really do anything until he's in New Guinea. And then he just goes back and he's he's at the ranch and everything's fine. And I'm like, yeah, oh, yeah, exactly. And he's on the stretcher wounded and he basically explains it. Oh, no, I wrote all those letters. Um, yeah, yeah. I did actually love her. Um, but do we, after he leaves for the, the AOF, he doesn't mention her again, really. No, there's there's one scene where um, I think it's Peter talks about what a lovely woman she is. And then there's the scene in the canteen with the, uh, the piano and the, the handing around the photograph. Sorry to butt in again. In both cuts, there isn't any. You don't get more character development in the Australian cut. Um, if you were worried that you'd just seen the US cut and there's loads that would make this movie work, it isn't there in the, in the Aussie cut. No, I did that. think that might be the case, but no. No, you get extended sequences with the with the barber comedy man, um, George Wallace. You get more bits with him and you get more bits, you get the bit at the end with Japan. The edit's not saved. The film's not saved by either version. And I can tell, I can see why audiences didn't like it at the time. And I can still see why certain people don't get it now. For me, I just thought it felt flat. And there's so much more that you could do with this movie. I wanted it to feel more like Nine Men or Batan in that besieged yes. last yeah. stand sort of. We've got to, you know, if it had been a sort of thing where they're always in a trench and something like nine men i know we keep mentioning it but it does feel like it should be that way where it should be it compares really well actually um exactly you know bluey could be saying right lads you know we've got to hold until the the british tanks can come and relieve us and it's going to take a few days and you get you get them rob you were told not to do the accents i know we've had had words about this (laughs) i know but (laughs) no just like those jerry tanks it slipped through (laughs) i know it did didn't it I agree. Um, th- there's there's one or two sequences where it kind of claws it back, and there's the aerial sequence where the 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 town is being bombed, and I think that's the scale of that's very that's good. good. You see men running really for cover good. after they leave the church service. Um, you see a lot of men being strafed and 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 the bombing, and that's very good for the period. I think that is a you know another element of that spectacle. There's a couple of sequences where they're they're in their dugouts during these these raids and and men are visibly shaken they're looking up at the you know and and i think bluey has a lot a, a great little line where he, you know there's a there's a couple of explosions and and 
some dust falls from the ceiling and he says, oh, sod off or, you know, something like that. Those bits, they kind of, they kind of work, but then the scripted stuff where they're they're talking to one another doesn't really work. And they talk in like, they talk in poetry sometimes and and they talk. Yes, there is. Peter reads poetry and quotes Shakespeare and and stuff like that. And we know it's because he's a palm. Mm. Well, you know, he's a, he's, um, an immigrant immigrant rather doesn't sound good it's clunky to hear it doesn't it is confuses me um confused me sorry and it it comes back to that it's it's probably a mixture of bad writing and and Mm. poor delivery which kind of lets the film down in those elements and it it comes back to that idea of it could be a classic but it's lacking in some areas which holds it back from from being up there with you know even the films that that Chevelle himself suggested, like in which we serve and, and the first of the few, they they are arguably classics, uh, British classics at, at least. I'd have preferred it if the movie had followed the way ahead in its sort of staging. You know, you could have had the lads going from the homestead, could have had their training in the Middle East, and they could have been at Trabuk, uh, felt their first action and been blooded through the action, and then you could have shown them at New Guinea if you wanted to. I don't feel like the the, the men change. No, I don't. No. They don't. They, Bluey sees all of his mates killed. Mm. And yes, he's angry in that last sequence where he goes and fights yeah. the, you know, the sniper. He, he hunts mm. the sniper down that that shoots. Um, it's not Peter, it's uh, chips. chips, isn't it? Mm. Um, and that that's about the only point where it, and it, it's even in that, it's clunky. It's like you've killed him, you kill my mate, you kill my mate. Yeah, it's the, it, it's very odd. It's very melodramatic at times. Melodrama is not what I would have gone for in this movie no. at all. Thinking about it as a movie set within the war, there's some very clunky dialogue where people are like, "Oh, you know, being together and you know, like humor gets you through the through it, and we've got to stick together, and we're still we're still fighting." And, it's a propaganda you know, piece as well, it's isn't it? Propaganda we've got to consider that pieces, I suppose. yeah, and that I think that's why the movie doesn't translate to American audiences in 51, because they still keep in those, those propaganda elements of, you know, let's not forget that we're still fighting the Japanese, basically, um, at, at, in 44. Reminds um, me that one of, one of Wallace's best lines is the bit where he's sharpening his um, cutthroat razor on the strop, and it he, he accidentally cuts it in half, and he looks and he goes, oh, it's Japanese. I might have guessed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's yeah. a funny line. It, you know, in 44, that's yeah, that would have been quite funny, I guess. Um, yeah. You'd think. And it's still in 51. That probably would be quite funny. And it, it's well delivered. That's his best delivered line. Everything else falls a bit short for me. I think his scenes are perhaps the weakest of the film and they they don't stand the test of time. I don't know whether that's because we're culturally so far removed from from what makes him funny and, and, and the society that he was from. Yeah, I, I think in general, the film lacks a little bit in terms of dialogue and perhaps the performances but Chevelle's direction and the cinematography around the set pieces give that spectacle, which lifts the film a little bit. And then the other redeeming factor, I think, for me is we're seeing Australian troops in carriers into Brook, which isn't something we get to see represented on film very often. And then we get to see them in New Guinea as well. And I think those, those things lift the film a little bit. But again, okay. as we've said, I think it, is held back from being, mm. you know, rightfully considered as a as a classic, right? 
because it it doesn't really stand up there with forty thousand horsemen even in terms of how well it works. I'm very much I don't enjoy this movie. I'm not saying it's the worst movie I've ever seen. You know, as I said earlier, either cut doesn't save it. I think they try to save it in the fifty one cut by you know cutting off cutting away a lot of the fat, but even then. It, it doesn't, it's not redeeming. And it's annoying from doing a little bit of research onto Brooke, I'm doing at the moment um, for, the, for the documentaries I'm making. There's so much you could do. The siege itself, the actual history is enough. But this is really one where I'm thinking, well, you're calling it the rats of Tobruk. You're trying to present it as if that's what it was. But yet you don't, for me at least, just from one person's view, you don't show enough of it for it to be yeah. a truly coolest, call this film rats of Tobruk. Because there's so much you could have pulled from. If you spent 12 months <laughs> pulling here and there and everywhere, mm-hmm, I know it's mm-hmm. 1944. I know you're filming within a war. I know there's economic hardships, everything else. You know, you might not be able to get what you want to get because you're in the middle of a war. But there are movies made within the war in England, in America, that, that look better and are written better and, and, and feel better than this one. So this week, I'm, I'm annoyed because up to now, I've really enjoyed these films. And this one just for me falls flat more than a little bit it just falls flat i guess that rounds us out for i think it does the rats of tobruk i think that's that that's a good conclusion i think that's representative both of of, of how we feel about the films i think you yeah, can't enjoy I, every I, film it's just, I, know I know where you're coming from and there are good elements I, I can appreciate there are good elements within this movie but as overall as a film i've yeah. tried to watch it a few times now and I, you know finally sat down to watch it properly over the last couple of days and it, it still, I just have issues. I just can't, can't get past its flaws. Well, there we go, guys. Anzac Month continues next week. Hopefully, in a week or two, we'll have uh, Rob Lyman joining us for Kokoda. Yes. Uh, but next week's episode is going to be extremely interesting as well. Won't say any more than that. Do make sure you follow us at, at Fighting on Film over on Twitter. And do check out our website, fightingonfilm.com as well. Yeah, of course. And don't forget that Anzac Day itself is on the 25th of April. Um, Indeed. Keep an eye on the uh, socials. We'll be doing some threads on that day. I think I might put up a thing about your favourite characters from Australian war cinema or something like that. Thank you very much for joining us again. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.